You're listening to audio recorded at Mount Air First Christian Church. For more resources or to contact us, look us up at www.mountairfirstchristianchurch.org. Colossians chapter 1, verses 1 through 14. Paul, an apostle of Christ Jesus, by the will of God, and Timothy, our brother, to the saints and faithful brothers in Christ at Colossae, grace to you and peace from God our Father. We always thank God, the Father of our Lord Jesus Christ, when we pray for you, since we heard of your faith in Christ Jesus and of the love that you have for all the saints because of the hope laid up for you in heaven. Of this you have heard before in the word of truth, the gospel, which has come to you, as indeed in the whole world it is bearing fruit and increasing, as it also does among you, since the day you heard it and understood the grace of God in truth, just as you learned it from Epaphras, our beloved fellow servant. He is a faithful minister of Christ on your behalf and has made known to us your love in the Spirit. And so... From the day we heard, we have not ceased to pray for you, asking that you may be, may be filled with the knowledge of his will in all spiritual wisdom and understanding, so as to walk in a manner worthy of the Lord, fully pleasing to him, bearing fruit in every good work and increasing in the knowledge of God, being strengthened with all power according to his glorious might for all endurance and patience with joy, giving thanks to the Father who has qualified you to share in the inheritance of the saints of light. He has delivered us from the domain of darkness and transferred us to the kingdom of his beloved Son, in whom we have redemption, the forgiveness of sins. Grass withers, flower fades, and the word of our God stands forever. So this week, as I've said, we're going to start this new series through the book of Colossians. And I want to start out just by discussing, hopefully briefly, some background to the book of Colossians. Now, this isn't always information you necessarily have to have in reading your Bible. If you don't know the, the context of the book of Ephesians or Thessalonians or Philemon or whatever, it, it, the Word of God is sufficient to do its work if you don't know all of the background. But sometimes it's helpful or interesting uh, to, to get the background of, of these letters that are written. It's not information you necessarily have to have in order to, in order to read the book and to benefit from it. But I like to look at the history and the situation surrounding the book for one specific reason. It, it grounds this book in reality. It grounds this book in reality. The Bible is not written as a collection of fables. Uh, as though, you know, some people 500 years ago sat down and let's, let's make up a religion and write down some stories and, and just pass around. Let's do it through letters. This isn't an invented book that has no foundation in, in real space-time. Christianity is a religion with a history. And so these books, these epistles, which is a fancy word for letters, are written to real churches, real people in real places. And Colossae is one of these towns. This is a, a genuine letter from the Apostle Paul to a specific church located in the city of Colossae. Paul, as, we, as far as we can tell, never actually visits the town of Colossae. 
like uh, Ephesus, the book of Ephesians, we know that he's in Ephesus, spends two years ministering Ephesus. We know that he goes up to Philippi. We know that he goes down to the church at Corinth. We know that he's in Thessalonica. We know that he's in many of these other cities, but, but Colossae he never actually visits. And in fact, you, we read it this morning, they heard the gospel from this man named Epaphras. So likely what happened was that while Paul was ministering in Ephesus for those couple of years, Epaphras, who had traveled into Ephesus, heard the gospel, heard the good news of Jesus Christ, and then went home and told his neighbors about the good news of Jesus. And a a house church sprung up. Not planted by the Apostle Paul. Uh, he, planting the church at Ephesus, people then heard the gospel, loved the message, loved God, loved what he'd done through Jesus, and then spread that message out into the surrounding uh, town around them. And that's how the gospel gets to Colossae. In Acts 19.10, you learn that uh, Paul stays at Ephesus for, for two years. Now, Colossae is about 100 miles inland from Ephesus. I've got a couple of maps. We'll see if we can look at them and, and see. This is kind of the larger region of, of ancient of the, of, the, of, the, of the world at this time. And you can see Palestine, Israel, Jerusalem down here in the bottom right corner. And as you go on up, Syria, there's still the Syrian nation. But all that's up there of Asia, Bithynia, Galatia, Cappadocia, that's all modern day Turkey. All right, so we're talking about modern day Turkey. It still really exists. This is not some made-up place. Modern-day Turkey is up there with Asia. And you can see the little, maybe you can, maybe you can't, but trust, underneath there is Ephesus. It's the little town on the, the, the western coast there of that big Asia, southern Asia is what, it's, is what it's called in Bible times. But then we can zoom in into that region. And the big red words are Ephesus. That's, that's the coastal city that has the church at Ephesus. The book of Ephesians is written to and this is incredibly mountainous terrain. And it's, it's fun. I didn't pull these maps up, but you can get on Google Maps and actually take satellite imagery and see these mountains. I mean, it's, it's an incredibly difficult terrain to cross. It isn't like traveling from here to Minneapolis and it's all this flat land and you just drive across it. These are huge mountains. And so you follow this, this Lycus River Valley that goes all the way from Ephesus. You can kind of see the mountains there, but there's a little blue river. You follow that river valley, and over here to the right are these, these three cities, Laodicea, Hierapolis, and Colossae. And all three of those towns live very close together. Hierapolis is famous for its hot springs. Um, and in fact, still today, there's the, they have, you know, they've done lots of works. People would go there to get healing baths, right? They'd go and sit in the hot tub, and it would make them feel better. It had high, high uh, mineral qualities to the waters in Hierapolis. Laodicea is famous. You've heard of Laodicea. It's mentioned in this book a few times, but it's most famous uh, negatively in the book of Revelation, right? Where God says, uh, you're lukewarm. I wish you were either hot or you were cold, but because you're lukewarm, I'm going to vomit or spit you out of my mouth. Well, it's very interesting. Uh, this is totally not, but it's interesting. Hierapolis had this hot water springs. Colossae is right on this uh, Lycus River, had very cold water. So these trio of cities, one has hot water, Hierapolis. One has cold water, Colossae. And Laodicea, all it can get is piped in lukewarm water. 
So they had, a very, they had a very clear idea of what it was like to have lukewarm water in your mouth and how kind of gross just lukewarm water is. So this is, this is a real city. Colossae doesn't exist anymore. They have excavated it. It's not as fun to excavate as Laodicea and Hierapolis. So not a lot of work has been done on it. But there is a major city close to Colossae there. Um, th this, I, I share all of this for this reason. These are real cities with real people in real history that are receiving this letter. These are real Christians trying to serve and honor Christ. This is a divinely inspired book, but yet a very real life correspondence from the author, Paul, to this church. And as we work through this text, I want to just kind of keep that in mind. This has a context. This is a real letter to real people from a real author. So I, don't, I want to ground us in the reality, the history of Scripture. So who is the author? Well, we're told right up front. Now, higher criticism today likes to dispute every author that it can, but we have really no reason to not affirm that this is from the Apostle Paul. It's emphatically stated, Paul, the Apostle of Christ Jesus, by the will of God, Timothy, our brother, this Paul, an Apostle of Jesus Christ. This is the Paul that we meet on the Damascus Road, right, in Acts chapter 9. His name is Saul, He's on a horse. He's going to persecute Christians on the Damascus Road. And who shows up but Jesus Christ himself knocks him off of his horse. He goes blind for three days, goes and is prayed for by, and has his scales removed of his eyes and, and it comes to faith in Christ. And that's this whole conversion account of, of Saul becoming Paul. That's in Acts 13.9 that we see his name is also the Greek, Greek name of Paul. But three times in the book of Acts, we have this conversion story told of Paul going before the courts. And he shares, here's how I was converted. Here's where Jesus showed up and saved me. And by the will of God, Paul is converted. And he's, we know from the rest of the book of Acts, spends much of his ministry in and out of prison. And this is the book of Colossians, one of the prison epistles. He is writing this letter from jail, and it's easy to tell if you read the whole book from the context that he is in jail. We're not sure if that jail is Rome. Some people say Ephesus, which is kind of seems like a stretch. Some say Antioch, we, we, probably Rome. He writes uh, Ephesians, Colossians, Philemon uh, from, from prison there in Rome. And so this is, this is Paul the Apostle in jail, likely in Rome, sending these letters out to these churches that have been planted. He's never visited, but Epaphras has come, shared the knowledge of this church, and he's writing to encourage them. So that's the occasion of this writing. It's going to unfold for us more as we go through the letter. They are encountering some difficulty, some Weird theology, and Paul is writing to correct that. He's trying to foster sound belief in who Christ is. That's quick background on the book of Colossae, on the book of Colossians to the church at Colossae. So what are the main ideas from our opening this morning? The first two verses, it's very easy to read these introductions and just, you know, it's like saying hello and move on. But there is oftentimes rich theology just packed into these few words in just the openings of, of these epistles. They are packed with theological implications. And the opening of Colossians is no different than any other book. We, we see that this letter is from Paul, apostle, not of his own will, but of the will of God. Um, we could, I could spend a lot of time on that, but you know, the, we talk, people have the conversation about man's free will. 
Absolutely, I would affirm it. As long as we keep underneath the banner of God has the most free will. God does what he purposes to do. And Paul is an apostle, not by his own will. It wasn't like he was wandering around looking for Jesus. He was out persecuting Christians. And God of his will converts Paul and he comes to faith in Christ. So he's an apostle by the will of God. And Timothy, who we meet in the book of Acts and whose letters we're reading through on Sunday mornings as well. That's this Timothy. Those first and second Timothy pastoral epistles we've been reading. That's this Timothy who is a companion of Paul. They are here in, in, in prison writing this letter. Paul has no reservations and uh, in, 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 in affirming that he is the apostle of Christ Jesus by the will of God. But in verse 2, we hear that this letter's original audience are the people of the church at Colossae. And so how does he describe them? That's, what's, that's what we're going to find interesting this morning. He's talking about these, this church, these people at Colossae, but the way that he describes them is just is so rich. He uses four different phrases in describing the saints at, or the people, the, the church. I gave it away, one of them saints. The, 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 the church at Colossae. And the first, the first obvious description is we go to the end of, of, of his opening there in, in the middle of verse 2, but he calls them the church at Colossae. They are in Colossae. They are at this location. It's no great label, but it does give like, it gives interesting credibility to the idea of, of the existence of, of unique individual churches in specific locations. That there is a unique church in Colossae. They, they are people who belong to this geography. They, they do belong to Colossae. It's, not, it's a gathering of a specific people in a specific region. They are the church of God in Colossae. A unique church due to their location. Yet still, they're, they're, they're part of this, this overarching body. They are fellow brothers and sisters in Christ, but they have this unique local reality. It's okay, and evidently a part of a plan of God, to have local representations of the church that is scattered across the world. It is okay to be a geographic, a unique, individual church, a local church with local authority, with, with underneath, obviously, the higher, the higher purposes of God, Christ being the head of the church, which is one of the things that Paul will talk about, but a unique local church in Colossae. So they're in Colossae, but the second description that I want us to notice, moving backwards from in Colossae, is that they are the, the saints and faithful brothers and sisters. You could say that word Adelphi is, is a plural word there that is often used in, in this. You can tell by the context that he's speaking to the general church. And we know that it's faithful brothers and sisters because as you read on in Colossians, he does address females as well. So he's not being sexist here. Paul often has to bear that label as though he is anti-female. Uh, that's, a, that's a mistake. That is not true. Uh, that's a, that's a mis that is a misreading of Paul. I want to just say, lay that out there. Maybe you've heard that taught. Not true. Paul is not against women. He is writing this letter to the faithful brothers and sisters, Adelphi, plural, brothers and sisters in Christ at Colossae. So they're at Colossae, but they are secondly, they are in Christ. Now, 
We read the ESV, and it talks about being in Christ at Colossae. And kind of for a literary flair, they, they, they didn't say in Christ in Colossae. They say in Christ at Colossae because it's a, it's a geographical location, and the in Christ is more of a spiritual location. But actually, the Greek term is exactly the same. So it's, it's, very like, it's very easy to say they are in Colossae, they're in Christ. There's a parallelism going on there. That these are the saints that have their existence in, in Christ as much as it is in Colossae. There's a parallel reason here. Uh, he's grounding God's people in the knowledge of where their identity lies. Identity is just is a huge issue in our culture today. So many are working very hard to find out what identity they want to plaster themselves over with. This is who I am. And, they, and we'll, we'll go to great extremes to put, put it out to the world, plastering ourselves with, this is who I am. This is my identity. But when Paul speaks of the reality of the believer's union with Christ, it's communicated in a way that doesn't have our Christian identity as something we cling to or plaster ourselves over with, but our identity is something that we live in. We're not, cov- we're, not, we're not covering ourselves up with it. Our identity is something we actually are immersed in. We are in Christ. As much as they are in Colossae, they are in Christ. We don't find our belonging with Christ or nearly merely next to Christ, but our identity is that we are in Christ. And this is a, a very common recurring theme in Paul's writings. One of the Christians' personal revolutions is that who they are in Christ becomes this dominating reality of their life. That I am in Christ. Like Paul says in 2 Corinthians 5, 17. If anyone is in Christ, he becomes a whole new creation. The old is gone. His old has passed away. The new has come. That being in Christ is this totally involving reality that they now have. As much as they are in Colossae, they are in Christ. How often, though, do you consider your standing as in Christ? There's a sense, I think, that Paul is wanting this church in Colossae to be as concretely in the reality of their existence in Christ as they are in their existence in Colossae. That's the reason for this parallelism. How many of them would wonder, I wonder if I'm in Colossae? Like, I don't, I don't know. You know, it's, it, they, they have a very firm, like, do you ever wonder if you're in Mount Air or not? <laughs> this morning, are you in Mount Air? Oh, you need help. Do you know that? Okay. You're in Mount Air, right? We can put up the GPS coordinates and you can know, you can get your phone out, hit location services, and it would tell you, you sit almost directly in the center of the town of Mount Air. You, you are here. You are in Mount Air. You can be absolutely certain of it. And Paul is trying to ground this church that is, he wants you to be, he wants this church in Colossae, and I would say by proxy, us in Mount Air, to be as certain of our reality of being in Christ as we are of the reality that we are in Mount Air. We are here. There is a grounding reality that my existence, as much as I am sure of being here in Mount Air, that I am in Christ. And the implications for that are huge. But that's what he's wanting them to grasp. These believers, the brothers and sisters, in Christ. Yes, in Colossae, but in 
Christ. Do you know your place in Christ in this concrete way? That as confident as you are that you are in Mount Air, that you wake up and don't wonder where you are, do you, that, that I am in Christ. We feel the tangible reality of that existence of being in Mount Air. Do you know the certainty of your life in Christ? Paul's going to flesh that out more in verses 13 and 14, how we've been taken from the domain of darkness and transferred into the kingdom of his beloved son. But I want, you to challenge, want to challenge you this morning to consider what position do you consider your life to be? We are suffocating in the air of autonomy and individualism. We work so hard to convince ourselves that our lives are our own. And by doing this, we end up lonely and alone. And the gospel comes to us and gives us a new concrete reality. Union with Christ. Belonging in Him. And belonging together as a body in Him. You know, there's real struggle here. This is boots on the ground issue. Because as I walk around spending my day, just in my mind wandering, thinking of all the things that could be done, living my life, given to the pursuit of being in Darren. Like, what does Darren want? What, is, what, can Darren, what can Darren buy next? What next vacation can Darren, what can Darren do with his next hour of free time? And my mind so easily reverts to this identity of I exist for me. I am my own. And so my reality is in Darren, in Mount Air. That's, that, that's the reality that I live with. And I think this reality we all live with is this struggle of living individually, autonomously for ourselves. It's a struggle that I know that we all deal with. But the Christian life is one that has been so captured by God and now lives firmly in Christ in Mount Air, that my identity is in Him. And do we know ourselves in this way? In Christ. Not in Colossae, but in Mount Air. Two other words that he uses uh, to describe the church here. He says this, the reality of being in Christ is kind of described by these other, these, these previous two words. He uses the word hagios. It's this Greek word, and it's translated in the ESV as saints, but basically it just means holy ones. It's also kind of the word for sanctified, holy, made holy ones. Some, some other translations will say to the holy and faithful brothers and sisters. It's just, it, it can be translated faithfully both ways to the holy and faithful brothers or to the saints and faithful brothers. I think these are both words describing the people group. Like there isn't two groups. There's saints and then there's just faithful brothers. Like that's, I think that's a, that's a terrible reading of the text. Like there's really exalted holy people. They're the saints. And then there's like, if, if I'm lucky, I'm, the, I'm at the bottom level of those faithful brothers that are left. No, it's, it's describing one group, holy and faithful brothers and sisters in Christ at Colossae. These are people who are made holy. To be holy is to be set apart for God, sanctified. In the language of the temple, there were things that were holy, because they were set apart to be used by God. The, the instruments of use in the temple, they were holy. They were not to be taken home and, and eaten, you don't eat cereal out of them. They, they were a holy vessel. They, they were special, dedicated to God. When it comes to the first fruits, the first fruits were holy, which meant they were set aside. They were given to God. They were set apart for Him. So to be in Christ is to be holy, is to be set apart for Him, is to be 
his. To be in Christ is to be set apart for him. It is to confess that your life is no longer your own. You were bought with a price. I am in Christ. I am holy, set apart. And the final description that we'll look at is this word faithful. Pistis in the Greek. Uh, the pistuo, this idea of faith. There are these faithful people. Now, a couple of different ways we can think about them being faithful people. And this goes with all of them, really, this idea of one of it is to think of, of faith as a quality of the group that they possess. They have faith, right? So they are people who have faith. Well, that's not bad. And I'm sure they do. I mean, they have faith in Jesus Christ. They, you can think of that as something that they have. They have faith. And it's good and true and right to have faith in Christ. But the affirmation of a, of a certain stance doesn't always make that affirmation definitional. Like, what did you just say there? I mean, let me explain. Okay? The, the, the affirmation of a certain stance, I have faith or I, I, I am for Jesus, the affirmation of a stance doesn't always make that affirmation definitional or very core to your existence. And what I mean is this. Uh, we, it's getting nice out. And so we're outside playing in the yard, and now it's going to be darker later, or lighter, not darker later, lighter later. So we go out playing in the yard, and we've got our soccer net out that we bought years ago, and we drag it out of my garage, and we get some old dirty soccer balls that are covered in mud, and we, Joel and I kick the soccer ball into the soccer goal. We'll take turns trying to see who can kick it in from the farthest away, or sometimes we'll play goalie, and somebody will kick, and we just, we trade off and just play soccer in the yard. So we are playing a kind of soccer, right? Soccer balls, soccer net. But it would be nowhere accurate to then me go around town and, and put on my bio or wherever, like write some biography and include in there how I was a soccer player, right? That's a different thing. Yes, I, I'm playing a sort of soccer, but then to say that I'm a soccer player, <laughs> that's a bit of a stretch. So we can think of this faithfulness as as these are people who just have faith, you know, they, they, they mess around with a soccer ball in the yard, or are these people whose lives is consumed with faithfulness to God? They are faithful. Not just that they have faith, like, you know, I affirm, I affirm that God exists. You know, James tells us that the, demon, the demons believe in God and shudder. You know, congratulations. It isn't just something you have, but he's writing about their identity. They are faithful. They are Faithful. All of this is identity and belonging language. Christ has come to earth. He's lived the righteous life sinners should have but didn't. Died the death that we deserve so that we could be forgiven and brought into his kingdom. We could have an existence as forgiven sinners in the hands of God, united with God through faith in Christ. We have been given a new identity and security as security as his holy and faithful ones in Christ. Now, Paul's going to spend the rest of this, uh, this next section of his letter talking about the theology and deepening the truth of that reality. He works to explain the supremacy of Christ. So why do we spend this time here grounding ourselves in the identity of, identity of being in Christ? Because as he lifts up the supremacy of Christ, how sweet does it become? When you see the, that Christ is supreme, when you see Christ as this, this, this figure above it all, what good news is it to know that your identity is in this supreme Christ? 
in this God who rules over all. If Christ is supreme, then there is no safer place and no more joyous place to be than to be found in him. So as we come to communion, this is a meal of remembrance of our union with Christ and together in Christ. It's a corporate meal that we take. We don't all go off into our corners and eat the communion meal. It's a meal we eat together as the body, as the body of Christ. As we come to this meal, do you know your belonging as in him? The reality is that every one of us struggles with this old man, this flesh, that is resurrecting and resisting complete surrender to him. And as you come this morning, let's come repenting for our part of the part of us that we seek to keep partitioned from God. I want this part to be in Christ and keep this for myself. Instead of laying it all down and saying, I want, I, I want to be yours. Come repenting for that part of you that you seek to keep partitioned from God. Come and find forgiveness and rejoice in being in complete union with Christ. And may we walk out of here knowing our primary identity, even more concrete than being in Mount Air, that we are in the supreme Christ. Let's pray. Father, do this work in our hearts as only you can do. Father, illuminate to us, open our eyes, to, the, to the, the old man that is still, we still wage war against, that wants to live for self, that doesn't want to be holy and set apart for you, but wants to be set apart for self and our own desires and our own sinfulness. God, this morning, open our eyes to see that. Help us to see it, that we might despair of it, run from it, confess it, lay it down at your feet and find forgiveness through the shed blood of Jesus Christ that we might be empowered to walk out of these doors rejoicing and knowing that our life is not our own. We've been bought with a price. Therefore, we seek to glorify you with everything we have. We pray these things in Jesus' name. Amen.